Well, good morning. You can go ahead and have a seat this morning. Oh, kids, you get to leave now. Lily, you will take the cross. They will follow you. Well done, Elliot and Audrey. Good job. I want to tell you, yeah. And I want to tell you the words were great, but the picture for me was better as Elliot was reading the scripture and had to stop and say, the light's too bright. I mean, there's a sermon there, right? I don't have it right now. But may we all have that reaction to Scripture, that when we begin to read it in its truth and its glory, we would say, you know, the light is too bright. The light is too bright. Amen? Well, I hope so, amen, because we're going to talk about a very bright light today. Above all else, the book of Revelation, sometimes we think of it as a crystal ball, right? Oh, God's going to show us exactly what's going to happen in the future. Certainly, God is showing us what is happening in the future, but it is not a crystal ball. Above all, the book of Revelation is a book for disciple-making. It is for us, the disciples. This is the whole Bible, right? It is for us to know how to live in the here and now, and it is God's way of giving us a glimpse into what will ultimately be so that we can bring that back to the present and live it here and now. And in Revelation 19, we have a beautiful picture of what it means to live between the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we've been talking about, and when we will be with him forever in heaven. We've got a beautiful picture of what it's like, and it is a Jewish wedding. That's the picture that Revelation 19 gives to us. Now, a Jewish wedding happens in three parts. Really quickly, first, the the groom-to-be, the husband-to-be, will travel with his best man to finalize the details of the wedding, including negotiating a rate with the bride's father, a payment, right, that he will pay, a dowry we sometimes call this, for the privilege of marrying his daughter. And so they travel together and they sit down with the dad and they work out a price. Those of us who have daughters who will get married someday, we wish this was still a practice today. Bring me money. That would be great. And so we've got this first act of betrothal. Now something else happens there, but the first thing that happens is a negotiation of a price and payment for the bride. And next, the, after this betrothal would happen, the bridegroom would leave. He would go away back to his father's house for a year. It's called the time of preparation. And these two people who have been betrothed, engaged, and are ready to be husband and wife live separately for a whole year. Different places. What happens during this time is that the bridegroom is doing something very specific. He is building an extra room on his father's house so he and the bride can live together there. That's what he's doing for that year. The bride is preparing for a wedding feast. They're working out the details of the party and what that will look like. Both sides preparing. And lastly, finally, after the year was over, the bridegroom and his wedding party would parade to the bride's home and begin a wedding feast that would last 7 to 14 days. Now, I want you to think of a sleepover 
right? Everybody in the family would come and hang out and kind of really honestly in quarters that were a little bit like dorms, right? Everybody would have places to stay seven to 14 days. Go back to why there needed to be a price paid. That's a pretty expensive thing, right? I know that Kevin, Jill, you're getting ready. You're, you're, you, when a Victoria gets married, seven to 14 day party. Yeah. Uh, I haven't gotten my invitation yet, by the way. I just want to say, okay. All right. <laughs> waiting for a check. All right. Hold your breath. Okay. And so this is the part, this is the picture that we get in Revelation 19, this three stages of a wedding. Jesus, remember, gives John the revelation that he writes down. Jesus gives it to him. This is Jesus' revelation, right? He's giving it to us. He's saying, I want to give you a picture that will help you live your life in the moment that we're in right now, which is the moment of preparation. Something very interesting happens in Revelation 19 that happens nowhere else in the New Testament. This is amazing. I checked it three times because I couldn't believe it. Revelation chapter 19 is the only place in the New Testament that the word hallelujah is used. Surprising, right? I, I, I said can't be. Looked it up, tried to keep going with it, checked all my sources. Only place where it's translated this way, hallelujah. And the reason it is saved kind of until the end of the book is because Jesus is taking us through this beautiful picture. And hallelujah is the word that his people use. It literally means you praise Yahweh. It's a verb when we say it. You praise Yahweh. We praise the God. And it is reserved in the Old Testament for only the highest celebrations like Passover. Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh together. And so it's only place in the New Testament is at the end. Revelation 19. Hallelujah. And it is reserved for then because there is something to celebrate. So let me just briefly go through these three things with us today. The first hallelujah in this chapter comes in verse 19, in chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation belong, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. You're going to remember the phrase we've been using through Revelation. This is a shorthand version. But you could just go dot, dot, dot. Salvation and power and glory and honor and praise and might and wealth and thanksgiving belong to our God. It's the, it's the famous refrain of worship. Hallelujah, they start with. This word is used because the people of God are celebrating that we are loved by Jesus Christ. We are paid for through the cross and we are set apart, consecrated, sanctified to him as his bride. I I can, I, very hard to find good books about the book of Revelation, okay? Super hard to find good books, really hard. To find good books, okay? I'm going to give you one that I think is absolutely great. It's by an author I, really, I know personally. His name is Daryl Johnson. And his, the title of the book is Discipleship on the Edge. If you want me to give you this book, you just email me. I'll send, it, I'll send you the title. Discipleship on the Edge. And I just want, he, his little paragraph is better than anything I could write. So I'm just going to read it to you. If we are betrothed to the Lamb, then we have a powerful picture of the nature of Jesus' love for us. Yes, he loves us as his disciples. And yes, he loves us as his friends. 
that would be good enough. And yes, he loves us as his sisters and brothers. And yes, he loves us as the temple, the holy place where he has chosen to dwell. And yes, he loves us as his body. That too would be enough. But Revelation teaches us that our Lord loves us more tenderly, more authentically, more affectionately than all of that because he loves us as his bride. We can't miss the picture of this betrothal. It is beautiful love of the lamb who was slain, who belongs all salvation and all power and all glory and all might and all thanksgiving. And we cannot miss that he paid for us with the greatest price ever paid for a bride, his own life on the cross. We are betrothed to the lamb by his blood. That was the payment of the dowry, my friends. He came down from heaven, we sang. My sin was great. Your love was greater. You brought heaven down. We were bought with a price which is the blood of the Lamb. We are His. We are betrothed. Today we will rehearse this love by repeating the word that was celebrated over and over, not only in feasts before, like the Passover, but in the future feast, we will say a version of hallelujah. And by the way, if you see hallelujah and you'd rather say hallelujah, same word, have at it. I may say hallelujah today. It's on my mind. And so we will say a little bit later, hallelujahs. After the price was paid, something else happened at the bride's father's house. There was a ceremony. Really, there was a wedding. It's called the betrothal ceremony, but it was really a wedding ceremony. And during this ceremony, the bride and the groom would drink from a common cup, and they would say the words, this is the wine of a new covenant. And later, Jesus says at the Passover, the last supper, right? The supper that has been passed. This is the cup of my blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many. We say it. We're going to say it later. And then we're going to say, Hallelujah, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. And you will say, therefore, let us keep the feast. Hallelujah. In this betrothal ceremony, the bride is set apart. She is sanctified. She is made for the groom. And so in our celebration today, we will say, sanctify us also. In fact, in prayer B, we actually say a version of this that is my favorite. We say, unite us to your son in his sacrifice that we may be acceptable through him being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We are set apart. The Eucharistic celebration behind me that we will engage in later is the picture of two suppers. The supper of Passover where Jesus says, I have brought heaven down and I have paid a price and I'm going to my cross. And the supper that will come where all of us who are betrothed to him will stand around the throne and say, salvation belongs to our God. Hallelujah. 
This is what happens every Sunday when we come together. We are rehearsing that we are his and his alone. Amen. And so our, what happens here then is that Jesus tells, tells his disciples in the book of John, all of this is going to happen. I am going to buy you. I'm going to pay for you. They don't get it when he's talking, but he tells them. And then he says, and then I'm going to leave. And you can't come with me yet. Ouch. Ouch. He says, I'm going away for the preparation period. I will go and prepare not just a room for you at my father's house, but a mansion with many rooms. My son Alex and my daughter-in-law Rebecca fell in love when they were senior in high schools. And they maintained a faithful and loyal long-distance relationship all through college. And seeing one another very sporadically. They lived in two different cities in Texas. And for those of you who live in the Northeast, it's not like Trumbull and Fairfield, okay? Cities in Texas are a long way apart from one another. It takes a lot to get there, okay? Right, Nate? Fellow Texan, right? Houston and Dallas. Everyone's like, oh, Houston and Dallas. It's quick. It's not quick. It takes a long time to get there. And they would tell us of the pain of saying goodbye and being separate every time. They knew they were getting married. This, it, we would just watch and long for them. We would be so sad for them. Excruciating was the word they often used. This is excruciating. We, we feel the same te- tension right now, don't we? In our place of preparation, Jesus is out preparing a place for us. And here we live now between resurrection and the final supper of the Lamb. And one of the words we could use for it is excruciating, could we not? In fact, if you don't long for the day where Jesus will be with us in person and will reign with us in person, I pray that you would know him at a new level in your lives. It's excruciating. But not only is Jesus gone to prepare a place for us, he has asked us to prepare ourselves for him. Revelation 19, 7 and 8. And the bride has made herself ready. We're the bride. And the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. We prepare ourselves now by practicing resurrection and by practicing it with fidelity and loyalty. Two words that sometimes, you know, they've fallen on some hard times lately. People are like, what does fidelity even mean? All right, it's a fancy way to say being faithful. It's a really great way to say being chaste, actually. It's a really great bride word. We practice resurrection by being faithful and loyal to our God. We aren't trying to prepare hard enough or well enough to earn Christ's love. Remember, that's already been done at betrothal. He's given us his love. You can't earn it, right? No, that's not what's happening here. What's happening is we love him, Jesus, our lamb, so much that our only reaction is to be faithful and loyal. Now, you may say, oh, well, the Jews, I mean, this year probably wasn't hard for them because they were really used to it, right? Like, we don't celebrate that way. We don't do weddings like this, right? That's crazy talk. A year? You don't even get to see each other? I just want to point out that Joseph and Mary, right, 
there were some issues during this thing, they thought. When Joseph finds out that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is pregnant, it's during the time of preparation. And what he immediately thinks is, oh, she's been unfaithful and disloyal. I mean, that can only be what happened. In my absence, she's gone to another. And so Joseph does this remarkable thing. He says, well, I'm not going to make a big deal about this. I'm just going to, it's still, and by the way, he says, I'm going to divorce her. Betrothal is final. If the husband dies, there's a widow. If the, if the betrothal is broken, there's a divorce. And so he says, I'm going to do that quietly, right? So please don't think that the picture is like, well, that was easy for the Jews. No, it wasn't easy for the Jews. I mean, the, the earthly father of Jesus, right, thought, oh, no. That's why it took an angel, by the way, to come to Joseph and say, it's okay. No one else could have said that to him. Nobody. It can't be okay. She's pregnant. See, this is the picture of living faithfully for Jesus Christ. And so, poor Elliot had to say the word prostitute. He handled it like a champ. Nate, when you came up, I thought, maybe Nate's going to read the passage of Scripture. And so, like, you may say, Brian, what's going on with this prostitute? Can I, I'm just going to pause for a second. I got to get a little theological. I have time, okay? Because we have this wrong. I'm just telling you, we have it wrong. We have it wrong when we, when we talk about Revelation. In, in chapter 17 and 18, talks about this harlot, this prostitute, very clearly. And it uses the word Babylon. She's Babylon. Now, Babylon is shorthand here for any system of the world that tries to come against the kingdom of God. Okay? That, that's what it's short. You, you, everyone who read this book would have realized sometimes Babylon was Egypt. Sometimes Babylon was Assyria. Some, whatever... Whatever, Rome would have been the big Babylon that the people reading Revelation would have thought of. They would have thought of Rome, not Babylon. There's a Babylon, it is a system, a kingdom, a small K kingdom of the world that tries to come against the kingdom of God. And the way it tries to come against the kingdom of God is by taking the betrothed who are in preparation and luring them away from the king and his kingdom. When the apostles and Jesus and the um, prophets warn the people of God about Babylon, what they're saying is, we're not actually talking against, Babylon's going to be Babylon. We get that. You got to stop messing with it, is what they're saying. You belong to the lamb, is what they're saying. And if you mess with that, here's what they say. Babylon is going to end up into a bloody, burning heap. And if you mess with it, you will do the same. That's what the prophecies are about. They're telling those betrothed to the Lamb to act like it and stop being lured away to Babylon. That's what's happening with the harlot. So when we come to some good news, you're like, Brian, well, that got serious. Aren't we talking about a wedding? Yay. Let's come to the second instance of hallelujahs in the, in the passage. It's actually said twice, four times total, three instances. They say hallelujah twice. They say hallelujah twice when they see that the harlot, that Babylon has been put down, right? And we might say, yeah, battle victory. Sometimes we teach it that way. That's not actually true. These are the hallelujahs of relief. We no longer have to deal with Babylon trying to intoxicate us and lure us away from being faithful to the Lamb. Do you get it? They're hollow. The people of God do one of these. <sighs> Hallelujah. It's 
it's over. (laughs) The longing and the distance and the preparation and the constant battle within our own flesh that Paul writes so carefully about to leave the lamb and follow Babylon is over. It's been put down. I don't know about you, but when I read that personally, my next prayer is, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long? And then lastly and quickly, the last hallelujah is in verse verses 6 and 7. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. The marriage of the Lamb has, and you may read into this, finally come. I had the privilege of celebrating my son and daughter's wedding, my son and daughter-in-law's wedding, Alex and Rebecca. And I think what made me the happiest of the day, and I think I even said this in my homily, you know why I'm happy for you, son and daughter-in-law? You know why I'm happy for you, Alex and Rebecca? You don't have to live in separate cities anymore. Like, amen, right? Anybody who's done it. I'm so happy for you, I said. Not that you're getting married. I'm happy that you're getting married. I'm so relieved that you don't have to travel from Houston to Dallas, which is just a really long drive anymore. You get to be present with each other. Friends, it'll be true of us one day with our bridegroom, the Lamb. A day is coming where we do not have to live separately anymore. And one of the things that he is going to say, I believe it, at the wedding feast when it's all done is, I'm really happy that we don't get to have to be apart anymore. 19.9, and the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Again, I'm going to quote Daryl Johnson. Great book. You should get it. Okay. Here's what he said. At the end of the betrothal period, the bridegroom, dressed in festive attire and accompanied by his best man and friends, would make his way back to the bride's house. Although everyone had a rough idea of when the groom would come, they did not know the exact day or hour. Usually, to add to the element of surprise, he would arrive around midnight. And his arrival would be preceded by the shout, Here is the bridegroom! Come out! Come out to meet him! These are words actually from Matthew 25. Then with great joy, the bride, veiled and accompanied by her maidens who were carrying lamps, would come out to join the groom and his attendants. And then the wedding feast would begin. When Jesus has John write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He is recalling that there will be a day where he will come unexpectedly to get us and bring us to the wedding feast. This is where resurrection becomes so important to us. Jesus did die, but we are not a widow Because he walked out of the grave. Our bridegroom is still alive. The lamb lives and reigns. And guaranteed, he is coming to bring us to the wedding feast. Guaranteed. It's going to happen. 
And so I can make this statement that I've actually said three times now during Easter. Here's the fourth. It is this truth that allows me to say what I'm about to say. Because without that truth, what I'm about to say sounds like it's trite or it's pie in the sky. It sounds like it's, a, it's kind of a vague promise or a sales pitch, not a guarantee. But I'm telling you, it's a guarantee because Jesus rose from the dead. Because the stone was rolled away. Because the tomb is empty. Our sins are washed clean. Evil is bound. Satan and his forces are destroyed. Our loved ones are restored to us. All injustice is made right. Our sin is exchanged our mora- our, our, for his righteousness. Our mortality exchanged for his immortality. Our sorrow for his joy. Our bondage for his freedom. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we can be shameless. We can be fearless. And so today for our two minutes of quiet. I wrestled most with this two minutes of silence of any two minutes of silence I've wrestled with since I've been here. How to land this plane well. And so at this very moment, here's what I think. Here's what I'm going to invite you to do, us to do together for two minutes. Rather than talk about places where maybe we've been unfaithful or disloyal, that, that's fine, there are those places, or maybe, maybe anything else like that, here's what I'd like to do today. I really wonder where there any place in your heart or life where you're scared, where you're feeling uncertain right now, where you're feeling fearful, where the separation from the bridegroom from our from our lamb has made us a little bit tenuous it is in these moments of insecurity and anxiety and fear that we begin to go to babylon for the answer but we don't have a great high priest who doesn't get our fear he gets it and so today for two minutes i'm wondering if we could sit together with him and be honest about where we need him to come, alleviate our fear, and speak security into our lives. You bow your head and close your eyes. I'll watch the time. And so Jesus, today we thank you that you left the majesty of heaven and that you came humbly down that you recognize that our sin was great and you brought with us a greater love and that we can rest assured that nothing, nothing can separate us from that love, that we are yours. And as we prepare, would you give us the confidence to prepare, to wait, to seek, to long, And God, would you give us the confidence to love others as you have loved us, inviting them to this great wedding of the Lamb. We ask it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said...